Hello, my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're visiting the asylum. So I'm here at the local video store, and I'm looking at the shelf, and what I really want to see is my favorite movie of the summer, Transformers. Oh, it's right there. They have like 10 copies available. I'm shocked because you think they wouldn't be there. I, I mean, it seems it's still playing in theaters, and yet here it is. And Big Robot on the cover... Wait, there seems something a little off about this. Ah, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Maybe it's a poster you haven't seen before. <laughs> Here we are back at home, and we're about to watch my favorite movie, Transformers. Huh, this looks a little uh, low rent. <laughs> yeah, but... ah, maybe my memory played tricks on me. I was very intoxicated when I saw it last. Wait a minute, this isn't Transformers at all. It's Transmorphers. And it was released by a company called The Asylum, the same people that put out H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds and Age of Hobbits. Princess of Mars. That was an uh, Avatar ripoff. I Am Omega. Atlantic Rim. Yes. Atlantic Rim 2. Some other subtitle. And who could forget Sharknado 1 through 5. <laughs> Isn't there like a sixth one coming out soon? <laughs> sure, why not? They call themselves the Asylum, but really they should be in jail. <laughs> So the Asylum is a company that makes mockbusters. They've admitted it at this point where they piggyback off of the name of popular films that are coming out and they just want to essentially trick people mm -hmm. because that's how they can make revenues. People think that the movie that they're about to watch is the big famous one and it's not. They've existed since 1997. They were founded by David Michael Latt, David Ramawi, and Sherry Strain in 1997. Their first in-house production was called Death Valley, The Revenge of Bloody Bill, but their first mockbuster was the aforementioned H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. And I have a friend who actually rented it thinking it was a Steven Spielberg film and was like, huh, I guess it already came out. Went home, watched it, and realized... Whoa, this is really low rent. I didn't think Steven yeah. Spielberg would have made this. And there was nudity on screen, and he was like, well, nope, this is not the Steven Spielberg film. I think the first time I became aware of The Asylum was with their movie Snakes on a Train, mm -hmm. which came out months before Snakes on a Plane did. <laughs> That's probably why Snakes on a Plane didn't have the success that it did, is that the train just grabbed all that money yeah. from the get-go. Yeah, that's why. I mean, let's be honest that I have no problem with them doing this piggyback technique. If it gets people to watch their films, make the money, all the power to them. I have mixed feelings about that. I don't particularly care about the idea that they're, you know, stealing money from the pockets of big corporations. Because let's face it, Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds did fine. Yeah, um, uh, The Hobbit did okay. Yeah, like, it's not like they're hurting the film. Like, there's no ads at the beginning of movies that say, don't watch Mockbusters because you're taking jobs away from yeah. the everyman. And the idea of taking money out of the pockets of innocent consumers and trading on their uh, vulnerability. I mean, that's uh, a little bit more uh, troublesome, you yeah, would say. Yeah, I don't, I don't like it. Although, on the other hand, if you rent Transmorphers and you think it's Transformers, maybe you should just pause for a second. <laughs> Reevaluate where yeah. you are. And you know what? In this video on demand world, you can stop watching it after two minutes. Yeah, so it's not even that big an issue. I read but, an article about them where uh, one of the executives was like, we're in trouble. They were on the floor of the American uh, film market and they're like, now with the streaming platforms, they can review them and our movies only have one star so the buyers don't want to buy them. Good. But, Good. You know what? Good. That's maybe why they uh, switched it to a thumbs up, a thumbs down model on Netflix. Interesting. Uh, but like what really interests me about this company is not the fact that they just make mockbusters or ripoffs of other more popular movies. What fascinates me 
is why aren't the movies more fun? I, I want to psychoanalyze you for a minute here yeah. because you're a filmmaker. You love making films. Love it. Your films have a lot of passion in them. I think you look at something like The Asylum mm-hmm. and you say, look at these people who have the great privilege and gift of being able to make a movie, which is not something that's very easy for a lot of people to do. I mean, and people will say like, oh, anybody could pick up a phone and make a movie, but it's... It's hard. Like, you have to organize people. You have to have all your ducks in a row. Like, it's not easy. And the fact that these people are doing stuff that uh, companies that I've idolized, like even Full Moon Mm -hmm. or, you know, the granddaddy of them all, Roger Corman, have Mm -hmm. done, is that they're making movies on their terms. They've even said that, like, they don't have investors. They they make enough money through sales that they can actually just self-produce their own films, usually from, like, 250,000 to 850,000. They have a warehouse where they shoot a lot of them. Mm -hmm. They shoot them all in L.A., which means that you'll have, like, shots of, like, a normal L.A. street and suddenly, like, a CGI dinosaur will run down, but no one's reacting. They edit the movies themselves. They have, like, their stock directors. The actors are, like, really faded stars, like Urkel that can star (laughs) in, like, a film where he fights a, I don't know, Mega Piranha or something like that. Yeah, C. Thomas Howell, Tracy Lords. I'm guessing Eric Roberts has probably been in a few of them. I don't know. So when you tell me that concept, what I assume I'll see are movies that aren't that good. But every now and then one will like come out of the herd and they'll be like a young, like really hungry filmmaker who's like giving it their all to make the best thing that they can make with the parameters they have to work with. Yeah. And also the fact that it's like real down and dirty, you think you probably hope. Yeah, I hope. Yeah, it'll have a bit of a let's put on a show Mm -hmm. fun quality to it. Like even the movies that Roger Corman was producing for New World Pictures in the 70s. Like they were ripoffs a lot of them. Yeah. And most of them weren't that great. But a lot of them, a movie like, I don't know, Grand Theft Auto or I don't know, even something like Candy Stripe Nurses or something like there's there's a a lightness to them. And there would be a belief that if you're making a film that is confused with another film, you want that viewer to walk away from it going, oh, well, that was still pretty good. Like, it wasn't what I wanted, Mm -hmm. but, like, I still had a really fun time watching it. Like, if you're making H.G. Wells, like, War of the World, you're going to be like, I'm going to make the best version of this that I can within the confines of what I have. I also think that you look at the asylum and you say, this is my dream job. Yes, it is. Like, you would love to have a week to make I am Omega. I would and tr- I, and try with Mark to, Dacascos. A, exactly. I would love it and, yeah. and try to make it as great as possible under those circumstances. circumstances. Yeah, and what you end up getting is stuff like Transmorphers, which we both watched. Boy, I wanted this to be more fun. This is a textbook example of how not to make a movie. Like you could yeah. put this in, like spend a whole class and just going like shot by shot, going like. Why is this decision incorrect at what they're trying to do? Yeah. So the story is like post-apocalyptic. Uh, the few human survivors have to take it out against these transmorphers, which are rendered in really cheap CGI. That doesn't bother me. What does bother me is the fact that there's like 40 characters and that the film is shot claustrophobic. You don't really know who anybody is. Nobody has any like traits or anything like that. You don't really know the geography of this like mm-hmm. ship that they're in. And you know... I'm sure there's a lot of arguments that can be made. Like, listen, we didn't even have a set to shoot on. We just had a wall. We didn't have much time. We only had 10 days. We had 100,000, not like tons of money. But it like doesn't excuse like how this film doesn't work. Well, here's how you do it. Instead of having 20 characters or wherever many this has. You have three. Three. Or four, yeah. Yeah, three or four, and you have a love triangle, and boom, there's, yes. there's your movie. You put them in a bunker, <laughs> and the transmorphers are outside. That's all it has to be. Yeah. It makes me wonder, like, is it because they think 
people won't take them seriously if they don't have like 30 characters. I have no, I, maybe, um, I have no idea. Like it might just be bad, straight up bad filmmaking. Because like this brings in the eternal question of this podcast of like, what is cheapness? And like, <laughs> what is acceptable to a mass audience that they can go like, oh, I don't like this movie but it doesn't look super cheap and bad. And like what goes through the mind of the people making the movies of we need these core elements to be able to sell it to a market like China. Like me and you, like yeah. we don't understand what works when it comes to that kind of stuff. Like, right? fil- like film financing, the demands of the global marketplace and how those, those demands dictate the yeah. artistic decisions. And it also may come down to like, if you have a trailer that has like 30 people on screen, uh, you know, some distributor in Germany may buy that movie because they're not going to watch the film. Mm. Most of them don't. They just buy it based on the trailer. So, yeah. like, is that enough? I don't think that 25 Craigslist actors who all look exactly the same. Dress like Neo from The Matrix. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that sells the movie. What sells the movie are the scenes with the Transmorphers, which mm-hmm. are almost as boring as the on-ship on stuff. Well, there's just, like, uh, it's it doesn't take any money to have a setup and a payoff. Like, it shouldn't cost anything. This movie has a first half, which is boring, and then a second action-packed half, which is equally boring. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't feel like these battle scenes have any... Uh, uh, you know, it, I hate this Because this is movie. what we have to talk I hate about. this movie. And it was directed by a man named Lee Scott, who directed 25 films. Ugh. Now, what does that mean? And a lot of them he made for the asylum. Is it just that, like, he's a good worker? He just goes in, he delivers his films on time, he delivers a product that can kind of look like what people would buy. Because I think that's what it is. Uh, I guess. I guess he does it on budget, but there is nothing in, in this movie that... I, there, there's nothing in this movie that I think is acceptable for, for a real movie. It's funny that, there's like... nothing good about this it. This guy directed the sequel as well. Yeah. Like, watching this movie and going, yes, this filmmaker should direct the sequel to this one, is just baffling to me. And you know what they also could have done in the second half? You know, there are a ton of transmorphers, mm-hmm. uh, all of which look terrible, but that's not the real, the real no, problem. No, it doesn't matter, yeah. But there are a ton of them, and there are a ton of people fighting them, and really what there should be are like three transmorphers, mm-hmm. so that you almost get an emotional investment in those transmorphers. Yeah, even if they're villains, and you just yeah. give them different stuff to do, yeah. and instead you get like this nothing. It's a, It's just a big soup of stuff happening happening but and, like and nothing interesting yeah nothing is happening and it nothing you would recognize as a movie you know what? okay i think one reason why the movie is the way it is is because it had to be 90 minutes yes all these movies are 90 minutes mm-hmm. so clearly contractually that must be it and they clearly panicked and said well whatever we have to do to get it 90 minutes let's get 20 characters in here and that'll pad it to 90 minutes that way we only have to pay actors for a certain amount of time yeah and we could pay like them less because like if you have 20 actors and they're all eager to be on there and they only have to work like two days mm-hmm. like it's probably cheaper than getting an actor and having him work 15 days yeah interesting i mean we don't know exactly and i think we'll delve into more as we go along but that same year i am omega came out and people will be like what is that a ripoff of well the classic will smith picture i am legend and you see what they did there because the richard matheson story that inspired it also inspired the 1970s film the omega man starring charlton heston that's a terrible charlton heston voice (laughs) Uh, i love woodstock so much Uh, that was his classic line from that film, right? Uh, and, but they took Omega from that title and put it in the other title. Yeah, they basically tell the same story, but in a much smaller version. And the first like 30 minutes of this movie, I was in. Yes. Because my expectations were lowered to like asylum levels. 
Uh, I was excited because Mark Dacascos stars in it. I just like the, the guy. Who uh, is he? He's an actor who in the 80s appeared in a bunch of martial arts stuff. Okay. He, uh, like, Only the Strong. And he appeared in stuff like Double Dragon. But what really gave me affinity for him is he appeared in Christopher Gaunt's films, Crying Freeman and Brotherhood of the Wolf, as, like, a martial arts mm. guy. He's he, got a bit of a Dean Cain vibe to him in this. Yeah, and he was known for the longest time as one of the best martial arts actors that was working in America. But unfortunately, he came at a period where, like, no one knew how to use him in the best way. I mean, this movie doesn't either. Samuel Hung said he was one of the best American fighters that he got to act with in martial law. So I think you did a little research and found out what are supposed to be the best Asylum movies. And mm. this is one that is generally considered one of the better ones. No, not no? really. No? no. Okay. I only checked it out because of, like, well, I like to see I'm Legend with Mark Dacascos starring it. I'd actually seen it back in my video store days and dismissed it instantly because I wanted the things that I liked. I've talked about this before. Uh And this film just doesn't deliver. Watching it this time, right from the get-go, I was like, whoa, the director is telling a story without laying on voiceover or, like, really bad editing, and he's just letting the camera do the, like, storytelling. Yeah, okay, I was impressed by that, too. Mm. And I feel watching this movie that I'm kind of grading things on a curve. Yes, we are. So, you know, good for an Asylum movie might be pretty mediocre (laughs) otherwise, but... Yeah, the first 20 minutes of this movie where it's establishing this guy after the apocalypse, his day-to-day routine, and the way it communicates that he had a a wife and child who died, the way it shows the house, you know. And, like, how he does things, what he's scared of, all doing it without him, like, straight out saying it. Yeah. And I should point out, this movie is horrifying looking. Like, it's just ugly. Dingy. Yeah. The thing about Asylum movies is that... A lot of them early on came in that period where digital technology wasn't at the point where it looks solid. Mm -hmm. So like a lot of their early films look like really rough, like I Am Omega does, where it's like, why is it so green? Like it hurts my eyes. Yeah, yeah. And again, I Am Omega, we keep saying the first 20 minutes because once the action starts going, it's pretty sloppily directed and edited. Like a lot of stuff happens. I would say it's about on par with like a pretty good sci-fi channel original, Mm -hmm. you know? Which Asylum makes a lot of movies for. Yeah. It has a lot of like uh, fun zombies in it. Yeah. It does. Fulci style zombies. One thing that's good about Asylum is they give their films a lot of scope. And I think that's a lot into like trailers that you can sell it if it looks like a bunch of stuff happens. Even though it's obvious they don't have the time to do like a proper martial arts fight where Mike DeCascos uses nunchucks to like knock a lot of zombies out. But I was invested enough in just the basic storytelling that they had given for him Mm -hmm. that like I, I wanted to see how it ended by the end. And that's a problem with a lot of these movies, which is I'm like, why should I care? Like you're throwing stuff at me because it's all digital and it's kind of like sloppily shot with like a bunch of camera angles, it's very difficult for me to get invested in any way, shape, or form. And as you said, the visual storytelling of this movie is Mm. pretty good in a way that it's not in Transmorphers. Mm -hmm. Transmorphers, the camera is very much parked down um, in every scene. It's kind of shaky, like, which was very popular with, like, cinema and television at that time. With six or seven people crammed into the shot, like a fucking 1912 movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you're giving it too much, um, because that makes me think of something like The Thing from Another World, where, like, everyone's very well posed. It's not like that. No, no. And we should point out that, like, Asylum got really popular 
uh, when they made a film called Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus mm-hmm. because that was the one of the first films that they made that just like got the cultural imagination. Like people were like, this is crazy. Can you believe it? This? And it's strictly, you know, the title and mm-hmm. sharing the trailer on Facebook. Which like a shark jumps out of the water, like takes a plane out of the air. It's like, very much like a normie's idea of a so bad it's good movie. Mm-hmm. And, and it's so, I hate it so much because it's so like disingenuous, you know? And like the film itself, which was directed by a director I actually like, Jack Perez, is not that good. Like, I remember being so disappointed when I saw it. It's a lot of, like, repetitive CG shots where you see the mm. same shot of the shark over and over again. A lot of people in, like, crummy-looking colored, like, control rooms doing stuff because you yeah. could shoot the actor out in one day. The idea of a shark fighting an octopus is not intrinsically funny to me. No. And... Uh, but you know what is funny? Sharknados. <laughs> oh, yeah. That, that's hilarious, isn't it? I mean, people watch those Sharknado movies to laugh at them, but... But what is the joke? What's funny about it is that, like, I read an article written by a screenwriter who had pitched a bunch of stuff to Asylum for years and never got any of these pitches accepted. It's on Crack.com. It's actually by an anonymous author. Mm. And what you see is, like, the producers of the Asylum films saying stuff like, listen, you got to ground your comedy. Like, it can't be too over the top. And, like, we don't want multiple genres mashing up together. And, like, in that article, the um, would-be screenwriter is like, oh, what does this mean? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, what's going on? But, like, what the Asylum producers are saying does make sense. Like, they're mm-hmm. notes that I would agree with when mm-hmm. you're making something crazy like that. Like, don't make fun of the concept. Like, just do it straightforward. That's the first rule of comedy. Yeah. yeah. And if you do that, then people can accept it. Because... People don't like to be reminded that what they're watching is dumb. It's interesting that something like Sharknado would pop as big as it did because it's just the concept itself that became a joke. Because if you watch the first Sharknado, it's not making fun of itself. But the second, third, and fourth, and fifth one, then they started like, oh, we're in on the joke. Right. And that's when it's even more like, ugh, disingenuous. Hate it, hate it. So you watched seven movies this week. I did. I watched seven Asylum films. Okay, I watched one more. Yep, and, and we're going to talk about it because we disagree about it. But but why don't you say some of the other ones you watched first? So I watched Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes. Uh, <laughs> it's one that, when I worked in a video store, always captured my imagination because it was like Arthur Conan Doyle versus like a T-Rex, a squid, a metal dragon, uh-huh. a dinosaur, like a little one. I was like, oh man, this is going to be so much fun. And then it's not. Because this is an example of the Asylum doing something very competently to the point that there's no flair or personality or really fun. Like it just has these things, but because you don't care, it's a slog to get through. Mm-hmm. Um, I also watched Age of Dinosaurs, a 2013 picture, which is getting to the point where, like, they throw so much stuff at the audience. It's basically action-packed for the last hour. And it starts Treat Williams, favorite of mine, from such pictures as 1941, uh, The Substitute, and the classic Deep Rising, but then gives them no personality. Like, there's no beats or, like, stuff really engaging. So just, like, dinosaurs killing people in L.A. It's humorless, which is before Sharknado is par for the course for them. And it's just kind of boring because it's all this stuff and you're like, well, I don't care about any of these characters. No one has beats. There's no setups or payoffs. So like, why am I still watching this? Mm-hmm. But Age of Dinosaurs is getting to that level of where Asylum is now that their movies are very technically okay. 
Okay. Like something like Death Racers, which was their ripoff of Death Race 2000, which stars co-stars, the insane clown posse. Oh, no. And that they get out of their cars five minutes into the race and spend the rest of it on foot is at a technical level that like I would have done in high school mm. where it's like all over the place and they've passed that, which is almost a little bit like sad because there's no more like, what are, what are these decisions that they're making? Now mm. it's like, oh, this is very well made. Like I watched another one called uh, Mega Shark versus Mecha Shark from 2014. This one was fun. Because the screenwriter didn't know how to do setups and payoffs. It had scale. There was a lot of fun gags in it. It just still wasn't quite far enough to make me go, like, I like this movie and I would recommend it. Hearing all these titles makes my head hurt. It gives me a migraine. But does it just make your head hurt because you know what the Asylum movies are? Because if you were 12 and someone told me that title, I'd be like, that would be the greatest movie ever. Yeah, it's because, look, I'm all for a movie about transmorphers. I'm all for, you sent me a a poster for one of the, what was it called? Like Uh, Plane versus Volcano. Plane versus Volcano. Yes. Uh, I love it. What? Like, I just know that they'll do a bad job with it. Yeah. And that's just the frustrating part. Like, I read some articles about, like, that were written in big magazines about them. And there was a thing that, like, one of the producers give notes to the director that are so harsh that it makes the directors cry. Mm. And I'm like, that's fine. That's good. But why isn't the result there? Like, because maybe we're talking about something that we want that the Asylum has figured out we don't need to deliver. Like, if we do all this hard work and we try to make, like, the best, like, most funnest movie ever, it will sell as many copies as a technically competent, it's like po- okay It's movie. like Poverty Row. Exactly, yeah. 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 It's like, why should we make that effort? And if anything, if they make the effort, it might risk... Like some of their foreign buyers might not buy something that has more effort because it's different. Exactly. Like even the producer said, you know, we don't want people that have done stuff too much because then they may try and it may be like, get out of our hands. Like you may get a director who goes, no, I need 10 extra days to get this as good as I can get it. And the producers are like, this doesn't matter. Like we just need a product that we can sell. I hate this. This yeah. is this is so depressing <laughs> to me. I know. It really <laughs> bums me out. But okay, we watched uh, another movie. Uh, the version I watched of it was called Expendables 3.0. Yes, that's but- the title at the beginning of it. It's mostly known in America as mercenaries and it is an all-female expendables ripoff and uh the bruce willis character is basically played by cynthia rothrock the villain is bridget nielsen mm-hmm. and last seen in such films as cobra starring sylvester stallone and more recently on flavor of love Ooh. with flavor Flav. yes or was it celebrity big brother i can't remember one of those um but the the team of mercenaries that they assemble to to go after bridget nielsen includes zoe bell um, Vivica A. Fox, Christina Locken from Terminator 3, and somebody else who I'm forgetting. And it was directed by Christopher Ray, son of podcast favorite Fred Olin Ray. Wow, what pedigree. <laughs> um, I saw this movie and I... I had uh, high-ish hopes for this one because, you know, the idea of an all-female Expendables movie, I'm not made of stone. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm interested in that. And I do think that the cast is quite good, with the possible exception of Cynthia Rothrock, who doesn't have a lot to do mm-hmm. and is a bit wooden in her scenes. But Bridget Nielsen as the villain really... <laughs> Just eating the scenery. Oh. Everybody's having a ball in this movie. Vivica A. Fox is yeah. having fun. They're all having fun. Uh, the action scenes are very kind of uh, John Woo ripoff-ish. Mm-hmm. 
most of the movie so so the plot is that bridget nielsen has kidnapped the president's daughter in the middle east (laughs) and by the middle east i mean los angeles (laughs) yes a a abandoned prison in los angeles yeah the abandoned prison which is clearly just the asylum warehouse and where we spend way too much time oh my god so i really like this movie okay and will said that he was bored I wasn't bored at all. I felt the film hit all the beats that it's supposed to. And while we do spend a lot of time in that prison set, like there's a bunch of stuff going on. They actually have a plan. They execute it. It's fun. Every character has something to do. Like there's one that's a sniper. There's one that's a bomb expert who does stuff like pull a button off her shirt and roll it across the ground, which another character shoots with their pistol, which causes it to explode. I think there were a lot more scenes than I would have liked of just characters sitting in this prison talking. Yeah, but I didn't think there was that much because if you break it down, that scene is maybe 10 minutes minutes and it intercuts between all of them because once they get to that prison they set like a plan in motion where each one has a different thing that they have to do i think the action is also pretty bad the action is okay it's again i'm rating this on the sure. asylum scale but there's a lot of it zoe bell gets a lot to do when i saw the trailer i assume oh zoe bell shows up for one scene and then leave nah she's the lead of this movie and i found that it was just fun like because everybody on screen was having fun and the director seems to be making like a visible effort like there's actual physical squibs in the movie which you I never liked that. Yeah, that was good. So, like, it feels like everybody on this production was trying their hardest. And I think that the difference between me and you on this is, like, I like this kind of trash action stuff. Yeah. That can do it at, like, a level of competency that most people would be like, ah, oh, nah, this is boring. Yeah. So that's the difference between both. Like, if somebody said, like, oh, is there, like, a fun asylum film? I would recommend this one and then put a lot of, like, caveats on it. I will say that it's better than it could have been. Yes. Um, and the cast is pretty good. Yeah. So. And I mean, I that's all really that it boils down to for me is like as long as the cast is having fun the director's making an effort and the screenwriter like tried and then didn't just put all these elements on screen to like tell a fun story then it's good enough for me god there are a lot of things that i could be doing (laughs) i think that's what i think about really but i feel like you probably watch it out of the corner of your eye no i watched it you gave it your full attention i gave it my full attention maybe that was a problem then Maybe. Uh, But the Asylum is still making movies. Um, They seem to be getting sued more often um, over the last few years. Because, I mean, their mantra seems to have been like, we're such small potatoes. Like, what difference does it make that we're releasing a film called American Battleship when Peter Berg's Battleship is coming out? We saw an interview with the two guys who run the company where they say that pretty much if they ignore the cease and desist letter most of the times the big studios won't follow up because it's just not worth it but some of the companies like that american battleship one they did come at them and they had to rename their movie age of hobbits they had to rename their film age of hobbits is a blatant (laughs) copyright infringement It is. They tried to argue that Hobbits have existed before then. They have made a TV show that plays on the Sci-Fi Network that's genuinely good called Z Nation. It's lasted for four seasons. Obviously, it was like a riff on Walking Dead. Um, But what they do is they just go all in and they know how ridiculous the concept is, but they treat all their characters very seriously. Mm-hmm. And craziness can happen around the characters as long as the characters are grounded. So the show is super fun. And it really helps that the first two seasons, a lot of the episodes were directed by John Himes, the mm-hmm. guy who directed the last two Universal Soldier uh, films and who also made like Dragon Eyes. He's a director I really like, and you can definitely see how his style helps that show. Mm-hmm. But it also makes me wonder like, why wouldn't John Himes go direct an asylum film? Probably he doesn't get as much freedom and mm-hmm. he doesn't have the resources and the time and the respect that, mm-hmm. that he feels he would 
deserve if and you like the asylum. If and, you, and yeah there is a stink to it it's not a prestigious brand and the fact that like he already made two universal soldier pictures like it would be a step down i guess yeah even though you look and you see like Mary Lambert, the director of Pet Cemetery, has directed like I don't know, like Giant Snake versus like Mega Lobster. Why do that if you don't have to? Yeah, and, and I mean, listen, Asylum. If you're listening to this right now, you can hire me. Uh, I'd be happy to come down and shoot stuff. I can edit. I can use camera. <laughs> I can direct. Um, just ignore my co-host. Yeah, I, ignore me. I, I would actually like to see you get a job at Asylum. I'd be interested in seeing how that would work out. Listen, there's that Bumblebee movie coming out. We can make one called Yellow Jacket or Bumble Wasp. Super easy. The Transformer barely has to appear in it. Oh, you know, Alita um, Battle Angel, that new big James Cameron, Robert Rodriguez. Let's hit the market first with Alina Battle Demon. And it'll be like a cube kind of thing. It's like a robot girl. Mostly one room that we just redress every time. But, you know, I feel like a Asylum hears pitches like me all the time and they, they can just sense like we'd rather have someone we can trust like we'd rather go back to someone who we made movies with a bunch than some newcomer who's young and hot which I am you none of those what? things you're just too good for the Asylum <laughs> yeah. that's what it is that's probably what the email would say yes. um, but I'd be curious like do they want to make good movies or does it not matter I, I don't money. think they care I think the the producers don't. I think uh, Freddle and Ray's son, who made Ex- Expendables or yeah, Mercenaries, Mercenaries, whatever it was called, I think he tried. Yeah, he tried. Uh, and I think you can tell when they're... I don't think the guy who made Transmorphers tried, or else it would have been better. Well, I can feel that, like, Age of Dinosaurs, the guy's trying, and Megashark versus Mechashark, the guy's trying. You know what I can tell? Commentary tracks on the Blu-ray. Well, you know what? Anybody who has done shift work knows that not all work is passion work. Yes, exactly. You know, and that's the case here. As the great David Dakota said um, once while being interviewed on the set of Sorority Girls in the Slime Bowl-O-Rama, what is this movie for you? And he went, two weeks of work. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and, you know, the, that's not so bad. Nope. So do we have any letters? Uh, we do have letters. And as per usual, um, Mr. Asylum, you can email me at importcinemaclovepodcast at gmail.com. Like, I will make this movie for you. Yeah. I've made, I've directed two feature films. Let Justin direct an asylum <laughs> film. You can just give me whatever. Plane versus volcano? Two? The volcanoing? But unfortunately, Mr. Asylum isn't in the email inbox yet. <laughs> Not yet. Who is Listen, there? we've been emailed by Lizzie Bourne. Next up, Mr. Asylum. Nice. And then um, Tom Cruise. Yeah, exactly. Our first email is from Steven, and it goes, Dear Justin and Will, Congratulations on the show. It's truly warm, informed, and authentic experience. My top podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm a screenwriting lecturer at Australia's National Film School. I cited you both recently in a class with master's student when P.T. Anderson came up. Hmm. Uh, thank you very much. Um, uh, we will go on tour as well if any university wants to hire us yeah. to discuss movies. We'd be happy to. I'm not joking. We need money. (laughs) This made me wonder if you had any advice on theory and practice for film students. Thank you again. Your discussion, introduction, and archiving is actually really important. Thanks, Stephen Davis. Well, first of all, this is called consulting work, and it uh, costs (laughs) money. As someone who works at a university, you know all about this, right? I do. Do you have uh, any Any theory that I would recommend? Yeah, or or any advice for approaching theory. I've always been very distrustful full of theory and I think that's only because of my post-secondary education and the fact that like I didn't get it and the way people would talk about it was so disconnected from anything 
that I understood or liked uh-huh. or could feel passionate about that I was like, eh, I don't know about this. So I've always been like very wary of anything that starts with in this text, I will discuss blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's that makes me hack. like throw the book away because no, thank you. I mean, I, I love film theory. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I took a film criticism and theory class in my second year university mm-hmm. and it like introduced me to so many concepts that I still use today, whether it's the male gaze mm-hmm. or whether it's like, you know, Baudrillard's theory of the simulacrum, you know, yeah. like, like a good film theory class is, uh, like it's like a philosophy class, yeah. you know. I, I'm actually curious about the context of, the, of this letter, though, because like, yeah, a, a screenwriting class is it like film a film production class mm-hmm. or that's a difference, right? Yeah, um, I, I think maybe a screenwriting class perhaps is useful to know like. Perhaps it's useful to know that, like, Robert McKee stuff, mm-hmm. uh, so that you know the the rules Ugh. that you can later break, as yeah. much as I hate the Robert McKee stuff. Or uh, why don't you just go pick up uh, Theory of Film by our man uh, Krauser? Yeah. That's like, I mean, like, we could start, like, listing the textbooks that Film 101 would give you, like, anything by David Boardwell. But really, the only Boardwell book that you should have on your shelf is Hong Kong Confidential. <laughs> Sorry, this hasn't been a very useful answer to the question, and I, I, I apologize. But I've always said, just go and like watch movies and then mm. you will understand what you like and you don't like and just question yourself of like why that is and a lot of the best classes on film will get that or just join like a film society i do think drop well, out I, of university kids i, I think that uh, uh knowing more never hurts no it never does yes uh steven if you can get australia to hire us on for a semester to just teach a class we'll create our own uh curriculum and we'll have our film theory books at that point right. <laughs> Uh, Our next letter is from Stuart Shivers, and he goes, Afternoon, gents. Your recent Patreon episode on auteur theory got me thinking. When is an auteur not an auteur? I'm currently rewatching all of Jean Roulet's films and absolutely consider him an auteur. I do too. I wonder, though, how do we account for the sex films he made to pay the bills? Should they be considered part of his oeuvre, his artistic legacy, despite them being made under a pseudonym and seemingly with little conviction? Interested in your thoughts, Stuart. At its core... The auteur theory wants you to evaluate an auteur's work equally. So every like film should have value and reflect the auteur's kind of preoccupations, passions, obsessions. It's impossible to do that. Like, yeah, well, it's easier for somebody like Orson Welles, who, yes. you know, Mr. Arcadden may not be as good as Citizen Kane, but it's so obviously an Orson Welles movie. But I think even in Andrew Saris's book, The American Cinema, when you look at the expressive esoterica section, he's talking about somebody like Phil Carlson. He'll say it's like, oh, Phil Carlson only really starts to come into focus 15 years into his career. Mm-hmm. I think there are many, many filmmakers who would you would consider distinct filmmakers who only at, at a certain point start to become distinct filmmakers. Again, the auteur theory is not really a theory. And the biggest <laughs> flaw of it is this, right, is yeah. that you need to be able to go like, well, this movie, he worked at McDonald's for a month so he could pay rent. Yeah. That's why he did that. Yeah. And like most auteur, like really hardcore theorists, like you can't do that because that would then break the reality that you're trying to form. Yeah. And movies don't, don't exist in a vacuum. No, they don't. You know, there are, ma- there are many factors in mm-hmm. addition to the filmmaker that contribute to what they are. And those need to, so the auteur theory is like a good compass through mm-hmm. film history, but it's, it cannot be the only thing. Like you can watch a movie and go, well, I don't see anything um, that I know in Ulmer in this picture. So, like, obviously this was one that he just made for the money and he did really fast between other things that he was passionate about. But that's interesting, too, because you can frame it in, mm-hmm. like, what his what his life story 
story was. Yeah. You know, just don't be dogmatic about it. Like, that's what it comes down to. <laughs> mm. You can send us letters again at Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, this week on our Patreon... You know, uh, I may have made the news twice this week. Hollywood to clue over here. <laughs> uh, and uh, so we talk about the discovery that me and my friend made of a deleted shot from Mac and me. And then we talk about how um, someone that I interviewed for an article ended up sending me a link to the lost version of Doris Wishman's A Night to Dismember, a film that was believed to not exist anymore. But now you can go and watch it on YouTube. Uh, and it's all thanks to Justin. <laughs> You, Actually, though. You, well, I mean, if you guys want all the details, you can listen to the Patreon episode. It's $5 a month, and you get four episodes a month and our entire back catalog. We're almost at 152, which means that triggers that commentary for the movie that we haven't mentioned. So please, if you're not a subscriber, do it. Uh, we really, really appreciate it. And this is the last reminder I'll make, because no episode will appear before then. Uh, Impossible Horror, the feature film that I directed, will be screening at the Film Society of Lincoln Center on Sunday, August 19th at 9.30 p.m. as part of the Scary Movies Film Festival. If you are in New York, if you are in America, I expect you If you are in the world. I expect you there uh, for me to be up on stage with uh, such luminaries as Martin Scorsese and all those other people who were there. I will not be on stage with them. Who knows? They'll be in the audience. Yeah, what could be the uh, guest people that will show up? Uh, Martin Scorsese, Spike Lee, Woody Allen, (laughs) all three of them in the front row. (laughs) Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, There's some problematic people there. Um, I don't know how I'll have to deal with it, but I'll deal. And next week, what are we doing, Will? Well, speaking of Spike Lee, uh, we'll be talking about him. Yep. His new movie, Black Klansman, just came out in theaters. So what better opportunity? Uh, We'll be watching... Uh, What do you want to watch? You know what? We'll figure it out. I already actually made a list. Uh, Malcolm X, I want to watch. I want to watch some of his lesser films, because I've seen all of his good ones, like um, Do the Right Thing. I actually watched School Days recently. Uh, The first one, She's Gotta Have It. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's like the weirder offshoots, like um, She Hate Me. Let's, well, let's watch She Hate Me. Yeah. Let's well, do let's, it. We'll do She yeah. Hate Me. Okay. Or like Get on the Bus, which was like an experiment that he oh, made. Oh, yeah. I'm curious about place. that, too. Yeah. So uh, Spike Lee, what uh, better people than two white guys to talk about him. But we'll do our best. Can't wait. And until then, my name's Justin Nicklou. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. So Midnight Madness 2018 was just announced. Those are 10 films that play at the Toronto National Film Festival over 10 nights. And what do you think, Will? I think a film festival is not where you would expect to see uh, ghouls and shivers and spooks. (laughs) And that's just the audience, folks. Well, you know, I've been a loyal attendee to Midnight Madness for almost a decade now. Go to all the movies back when they had the Midnight Madness pass. This lineup was programmed by Peter Koplowski. And I look at these movies and I go, I don't know, man. Like, do these belong in Midnight Madness? Like, where are the ghouls? Where are the goblins? Well, it's funny you should ask that because I happen to have Mr. Koplowski with me right here. Uh, could you c- come in, uh, Mr. Yes, Koplowski? Well, of course. Whoa, Just- Peter Koplowski! <laughs> Justin, I just can't believe you t- backtalked me like that. <laughs> with him I- in the room. I didn't think you were sake. here. And I mean, ghouls and goblins. I mean, we've got your Halloweens. We've got your Predators. Mm-hmm. We've got... Uh, not the sexual kind, but the alien kind. Okay. Uh, but I'm sure if you dig deep enough into the program there, there's probably some sexual predators. Well. <laughs> okay. We are, we are you heard it here first. <laughs> we are playing the film Assassination Nation, which is all about uh, a town that gets doxxed and everybody's uh, dirty laundry gets unveiled, causing uh, four young girls to rise up and kill the people who'd accuse them of... Uh, of being doxers. Which movies do you think, Peter, looking at this list, you got your 
Predator by Shane Black. You got your Halloween by David Gordon Green. You have The Wind by... Well, I don't know this director. You have Plane vs. Volcano. You have <laughs> Shark... Shark... NATO, you have uh, the Transmorphers. One of these days, you th- I think Asylum will make it to Midnight Madness. You think so? I think they'll finally, you know. They'll crack it. It's it's the thousand monkeys and a thousand typewriters. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Eventually, they'll just get it right. And they'll just find something that works. And though I might have already missed it, maybe I am Omega had a shot. <laughs> no, uh, I would not have played at Midnight Madness. So, yeah. So, like, what are the movies that you feel need the hard sell? Because, like, people wouldn't recognize what well, these def- movies I mean, everybody's interested in seeing the new house. Halloween film and, mm. and the new Predator, but <laughs> guys, listen to this. You're not going to get into the screening. Just forget it. So <laughs> now there'll be opportunities. I think Predator's playing three times, and it's also playing, you know, when the festival, <laughs> festival ends, so you can just see it in a regular movie theater. If you don't want to see it with amongst the uh, the ghouls and goblins that come out for midnight. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so I would recommend uh, the emerging filmmakers in the program. Mm-hmm. Emma Tammy's The Wind, as you just mentioned, was a really, really great uh, horror film in the tradition of uh, both The Witch and Meek's Cutoff. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd compare it to those two films, definitely. And I think she's definitely a talent to watch. It's her first fiction feature, but she comes from a documentary background. Ooh. And uh, the other film uh, is The Standoff at Sparrow Creek, which is done by the production company that did Brawl and Cell Block 99. This is a, also a first-time filmmaker. It was a script that was on the blacklist for a few years. Really, really bold <laughs> film noir style um, thriller. I've just compared it to more of a David Mamet play, so don't go in expecting a lot of bullets to fly. Mm-hmm. Just expect to be nervous about when the said bullet might fly. Uh, how does it compare to the Blacklist script about the dark and gritty Willy Wonka? Well, for similar reasons, <laughs> it took a long time for this movie to, <laughs> to, to get made. Because it is also dark and gritty. My favorite Blacklist script is probably Cop Out. Uh, I hope we'll be seeing oh, the 10th right. anniversary screening uh, next year. Cop Out was a Blacklist script? It was, yeah. yes. I think it was probably a Blacklist script entirely for the title A Couple of Dicks. Yes, yeah, that's, that's right. right. Like, I'm sure like basically a, re- a Hollywood reader read that title and said, oh, that's such a clever title, and just kept it on an agent's desk forever. I haven't read it, but there is that Blacklist script about Stephen King making Maximum Overdrive. Oh. At the time, he was like really coked out and like crazy. That sounds amazing. Yeah. I have a few friends that have read that. Yeah, they said it was pretty entertaining. But uh, there's another movie. You're playing a Bollywood film, Peter? What is this? Aren't yeah. these so long? They, well, the, fortunately, this one does come in under <laughs> two and a half hours. Yes. <laughs> two hours and ten, to yeah. be precise. Um, no, I, this film really endeared me. It's very much in the tradition of a Stephen Chamola Thai comedy. Yeah, it's called uh, The Man Who Feels No Pain. And it, and it directly quotes Jackie Chan films and um, Shaw Brothers movies. And so... The Midnight Madness has always been a program that, you know, celebrates Hong Kong action films. And it was exciting to play our first Indian film and have that Indian film be a tribute to Hong Kong action films. Mm-hmm. So that's the one I want to see. Yeah. And it was choreographed by uh, favorites of mine, Eric Jacobus, yeah. and uh, who choreographed and stars in a little indie film I saw like 15 years ago called Contour. And we, I just found it out when um, one of the other choreographer on it actually posted on Facebook. He's like, oh, a film I worked on is playing Midnight Madness. And it makes a lot of sense if you see the action scenes in the movie. That's, that's totally true. And the, um, the film, Eric Jacobus, some people might be familiar with his short films, which have played the festival circuit a lot and were kind of viral hits. Uh, Rope-a-dope, I believe. Was yeah, Rope-a-dope, the like Groundhog Day fighting one mm-hmm. where he repeats the same day over and over again. He does like video game, like fight moves in real life. Really fun stuff. So, And if I can recommend one other title that might be off most sort of cult films radar, uh, film fan radar, is uh, Diamantino, which I'm closing the festival with. It's a really silly satire 
um, that I've compared to the work of both John Rodders and Gregoracki and also Ernst Lubitsch. And it is at midnight because I just think it is such a... Ernst Lubitsch? Yeah, well, they... they, they, they actually, <laughs> then, like, those first two, I'm like, I'm following you, I'm following yeah, they did, you. They, this movie apparently was directly inspired by the filmmakers Gabriel Labrantes and Daniel Schmidt, who are actually more you know, comfortable in an avant-garde Yeah, yeah, space. they do wavelength stuff usually, yeah, don't they? Yeah, often. Mm-hmm. Uh, their films have played the wavelengths program, and uh, they're, but they said they, they they conceived this movie after watching both Lubitsch films and Sullivan's Travels, mm. and it's about a soccer player who loses his mojo, so to speak, um, when he learns what the concept of refugees are, and it just depresses him so much <laughs> that he can't play soccer, uh, and it's all about how he gets that mojo back, and... He uh, solves the refugee crisis. He, well, <laughs> both the refugee <laughs> crisis and the destabilization of Europe from neo fascists Yeah, it's, wow. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty epic and ambitious, and I think totally in the spirit of Midnight, so I really hope people stick it out all the way from the Predator to Diamantino every night. Well, folks, you heard it here first. Uh, zombies, uh, <laughs> killers, Draculas and Frankensteins, and folks, that's just the audience. <laughs> Wait, did we miss we any made that movies? Joke three times. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. Peter's not really here. We just hit play on the recording he makes for interviews, and he just rolled through them. Yeah. Now let's talk about the films that didn't make it to midnight. Oh yeah. <laughs> How many journalists have asked me that question? Really? Wow. Yeah. What do you think you're, you're going to answer? Like, you can't answer that question. I know. Of course not. It's. I literally felt like. Um, oh, this is this is a problematic thing to say. I felt like Donald Rumsfeld on that episode of Opie and Andy. Uh, yeah, <laughs> when when uh, Louis C.K. Uh, like tries to get him to admit uh, which that you're a lizard person, lizard person, yeah. or, uh, or rather, w- would he bomb yeah. Paris if if if, yeah. if he had enough intel? And uh, I remember he said, "Can you imagine the headlines that would be <laughs> in tomorrow's paper if I answered that question?" 